All right, first podcast of 2020. Good. Great. Fantastic. You came back. You're ready for something. Give me a little something, something. Give me a little something. I'll just be honest. I do not like the environment of this podcast. I sit at a computer desk facing a wall. Nothing to look at but the wall. And I got this little Yeti blue Yeti microphone on the desk. And it's not even really aligned with my mouth. So I have to kind of crouch down a little bit. And I've seen all the professional podcast studios because sometimes I like to watch a podcast on YouTube. Most of the time it's an audio experience. Most of the time it's just earbuds, theater of the mind. Imagine what the conversation looks like. But a lot of these big time podcasts, they're filming it as well and they release them on YouTube. So if you look at these podcasts, if you actually watch podcasts, the studios are so conducive to comfortable broadcasting. And I have such OCD and I'm so neurotic that I'm always thinking if I just had a real studio, then the quality of this podcast would be through the roof. And I mean that. So if you like this a little bit, this is not a GoFundMe. I'm just saying one of these days, that's my new fantasy. Yeah, I could fantasize about landscaping. I guess I could fantasize about a nicer car or a bigger salary, but I want to fantasize about an in-home podcast studio that kind of looked like Radio stations that I've worked at where the microphone comes down. You got big old cans. That means headphones. For those of you just tuning in, that means headphones. Not breast implants for me. Don't you worry. Comfortable chairs. Like an expansive soundproof room with great acoustics. Whatever that means. With really solid acoustics. And cool posters on the wall. I guess that's the most attainable goal. Cool posters on the wall. Do you remember the feeling of buying a poster when you were young, going to Prince Plus? There was no greater purchase. Yet now I've evolved into the world of framed art, which I like. I like a lot. But wouldn't that be cool if I just designed a podcast studio one day to look like my ideal vision for a room at age 10? Just Wayne's World posters, Ricky Henderson posters, Bo Jackson, classic Bo poster, Michael Jordan Wings poster. Oh, yeah. All right, we can all dream. We can all dream. So New Year's Eve, it's not just a year in review to celebrate and look ahead. It was a whole decade in review. A decade. And at first, my wife and I were talking about this. Just at first glance, it looked like a totally nondescript decade that nobody's really going to glamorize or romanticize when it comes to the future. Now, when I say when it comes to the future, of course, we will eventually look at 2010 to 2020 as some impactful cluster of years That truly shaped the human race. But right now, you just look back, you go, eh, I don't know. Nothing jumped out at me. And if I say the 60s, think about the imagery that comes to your mind. If I say the 1970s, immediately you think about the fashion. You think about the music. Think about the hairstyles. Think about the movies. You can even think about politics or arts or technology or anything. But if I say the seventies, I know for a fact, the images that come to your mind might even look similar to the images that come to my mind. And then if I say eighties, remember the eighties, of course, very distinct. It's almost easy to quantify and discuss what the eighties were just visually. But if I say 2010 to 2020, what the fuck pops into your mind? Huh? Nothing, nothing. Just more of the same. Did fashion completely turn the corner? Did anything happen to music? Doesn't it seem like Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones are just still touring? 
And I don't have a cynical look of this. I'm just being realistic. Of course, I mean, I later thought of it deeply, but just on the surface, I went, eh, 10 years, uh, nothing stands out totally. But as a history teacher, of course, the Obama to Trump transition, you know, going from our first ever black president, which is huge, to a president who says the word huge, like huge, is a big deal. I don't even know how history books are going to capture Trump because every day is something monumentally strange, bizarre, and seemingly historic. But also you think about the Me Too movement, women standing up for their rights in the workplace, socially, and beyond. Good. You think about gun violence, shootings and shootings and shootings and shootings. I think that might define the last 10 years. But mostly we're talking about tech, right? I mean, mostly we're talking about the apps and your iPhones and the apps and your iPhones and how they've completely just dominated our lives. You now assume that everybody has them. It's like color TVs. You know, now we assume everybody has a color TV. You don't meet somebody and wonder if they have a color TV. And that's what's happened now with iPhones or smartphones. You just meet someone and you figure, okay, you spend a good portion of your day tapping on a mini screen that's in your pocket. Okay, you communicate with this thing that's now in your pocket or in your purse. And that's just the assumption. That this is now controlling our daily lives. And it's become normal. There's not a ton of research on what we're doing to our brains. But this is the 10-year span where we saw everybody go from like, you know, the first iPhone comes out in 2007 and some people have it and some people don't. Now everybody has it. Now you could assume most people could send a text, receive a text, text a video, capture a video of everything they're doing. And then a lot of people are going to be displaying photos and videos for people to see. So I don't have to go down that path of my feelings about it, but this is the phase of when all of that launched and permeated into mainstream America and beyond America and just became the evolution of society. Thank you, Steve Jobs. Thank you, Steve Wozniak. If you truly think about the most impactful humans to ever walk this planet, you have to say the Steves. Jobs and Wozniak and the products are still evolving and evolving and evolving. But I feel like even though the first Apple computer comes out in what, 1972 or 76, what happened in the last 10 years, this was the decade of really seeing how these phones control us. Last episode I did, I kept talking about AI, AI, here it comes. It's going to destroy us. And I feel like I saw the first instance or we've all seen the real first example of what I've been talking about. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm only 94% kidding. So 6% of what I'm about to say, I truly believe, and just go with it. You've been on a flight, right? Yeah, of course. Think about all the commercial airlines right now for a moment. Delta, United, Southwest, JetBlue, Frontier, Spirit, Sun Country, if you ever survived Sun Country. Think about it. Any commercial flight. Have you ever seen the pilots? Yes, you have. You've glanced in their direction. Maybe you said thanks on your way out. Maybe you said hi, you saw him in the airport, gave a nod. Have you noticed that all of them, all of them are white men, and I'm guessing ages 52 to 62. That's it. That is it. And yes, this is my experience. And of course, you could dispute this and say, no, I've seen a diverse number of pilots on commercial flights. And I'll say, oh, really? Because no, you haven't. No, you haven't. Always 52 to 62 years old and not just white guys, but like if you were to draw a cartoon of a white guy, that's pilots. 
And I realized, oh, these aren't even humans. It's too big of a job for humans flying us. Do you realize? Do you even realize this job? I'm going to lift this jet into the sky. I'm going to lift this tube with wings into the sky with about 70 humans on it. They're going to rely on me for a smooth takeoff and a smooth landing. And usually it is. What do they say? Got a better chance of being attacked by a rattlesnake than dying in a plane crash? Okay, I guess they don't say that, but maybe it's true. Or you got a better chance of getting eaten by a shark than a plane crash? Well, the truth is there's not a lot of plane crashes, and that's still amazing to me. And the reason is because there's not real pilots. These are robot humans, and I don't know why the template was designed to just be white guys, little speckle of gray in their hair, good smiles, good teeth. You've seen these guys. They all have very generic general names bill hanley chet atkins they all have name tags read the name tags of these robot men this is ai they don't get sleepy they don't bring moods into the cockpit these guys generally don't make mistakes am i right now you're thinking about it you're thinking about it and here's the kicker nobody actually knows one I don't, I know a lot of people i don't know somebody that even knows a pilot i'm not related to any pilots I'm not talking about people that got their pilot's license and they fly little Cessnas. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about your fellows on Delta, United, Southwest, on and on and on. All of these white men in their 50s with their nice smile and their nice energy. Hey, how are you? Thanks for flying with us. And they all sound the same on every flight. If you want to take a look out the left side of the airplane, that's the uh, Grand Canyon. It's just the formulaic way of communicating. This is how the AI pilots were programmed. And we've accepted it. We put total faith in them. We don't question them. We don't ever say, I hope we have a good pilot. No, 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 no. You just assume you got a good pilot. doesn't matter what airline you're on. You never go, oh, I really hope we have a great pilot. No, all he has to do is not get you killed. He's not in charge of anything. Turbulence. It's not like a great pilot. We'll create a much smoother flight. No, it's all programmed. And this is what will eventually happen to the roads around us. Not saying we'll have AI human robot drivers. We're just going to have AI cars. You know this is true. Look at their name tags. Lane Patterson. I always read their name tags. These fake humans with their huge responsibility. It's one of the smartest things we've done. The aviation world. Just the flight robots. Let's stop calling them pilots. You know one? Do you have an uncle? A cousin? A friend of a friend who's a pilot? Of course you don't. Of course you don't. They don't make friends. Now, the flight attendants, those are real humans. Those are people with all sorts of attitudes, all sorts of moods, all sorts of quirks. Those are real people. So it's already around us. There you go. Decade in review. What happened? We realized that all pilots are machines. Year in review, decade in review. New Year's Eve, all about looking ahead as well. One thing I do like... This time of year, you see a lot of puppies on the sidewalks. A lot of people were gifted with puppies. And of course, you see a lot of people hitting the gym. It's a great resolution. There's nothing negative to say. Even if that resolution breaks off in two weeks, if you enter the year saying, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to get some fitness. Good. Good for you. Ride the wave as long as you can. And maybe it'll be a lifestyle transition. I got a gym membership. My wife got a gym membership. We've been going to the gym. I realized I love the gym. Love the actual gym. Now, the locker room is a different story altogether. The locker room is just, oh boy, so many old sets of nuts, right? 
All these old fellas have just agreed to walk around butt naked. Towel around their neck, not around their waist, around their neck. And I mean old men. Old men. Those nuts are clanking off the sides of their knees. I'm not staring, you know. The occasional glance, of course. They're always in the line of sight. And I love the sauna. The sauna is meditative. The sauna is healthy. When I was sick, I read an article that some time in the sauna could help speed up a cold. So I went in the sauna three straight days. And it is always weird. You know, they have all these rules on the sauna door. All these rules. They need to add no talking, right? One of them even says need to wear proper sauna attire. Like they're asking people to wear clothes in the sauna. Nobody's following that rule. Nobody. Don't adjust the thermostat. That's for the people at the gym to do. But why doesn't it say no talking? The first day I got this gym membership, I sat in the sauna, level three. Okay, there's three levels. The lowest bench, not the hottest. The middle bench, it gets hot. And then up top, that's where the big dogs roll. Okay, that's where you want to get a schwitz going. And it was just me. It was so glorious. It was just me for three, two, one, door opens. Guy in his 80s comes in. Immediately, how are you doing? German. I would let her learn. I said, pretty good, thank you. Not how are you? Okay, that's still polite. You could say, pretty good, thanks. And it doesn't open up a conversation. This is strategic. You go, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Done, right? Period? Nope. He wasn't done with me. He sits a little too close. It's a big sauna. Two guys in here. He sits a little too close. Asks my name. I tell him. What do I do for a living? I tell him. Now, I'm not returning any of this with the seesaw banter of, and what's your name? And what do you do? But he can't catch my energy. My energy is, come on. Let's just use this time, this sacred time, to have individual experiences. We can coexist. I could be friendly. But what do we need to have a conversation right now for? He tells me he was one of the original members of this gym back in the 80s. That got my attention. I said, is that right? Interesting. And because I showed him a little interest right there, a little interest, he had me. Then he just captured me. He said, growing up as a young kid in Berlin, this is not a great German accent, but this old German guy immediately got into Hitler talk. There goes any meditative experience I'm about to have. He says, as a young boy... We were taught in the classrooms to salute to Hitler. I was like, what the fuck? Who planted this guy? If you were to script the exact opposite of a relaxing experience in a sauna, you would have an old naked man sit next to me talking about saluting Hitler in his youth. And I just nodded slowly, grabbed my towel, got up and left. And at that point, I realized I am going to be scanning through the sauna window before I go in. You can't just go in anymore. You got to scout. Who's in there? Are there chatty old guys? Chatty old guys with them nuts on display. I say, nope, I can wait. I'll hot tub first. I'll shower first. I'll treadmill first. I'll lift weights. I'll do push-ups. I'll do dips. I'll do crunches. Whatever it takes to make sure I get that meditative individual experience. Now, that is just a small thing. Believe it or not, just a small thing that might bother some people in the locker room. But I asked my wife, how is it in the ladies' side? And she said, same exact, without the balls. Very, very old women, just leg up. Just legs up in the sauna. And I'm like, what am I picturing? She was just saying, spread eagle. 95-year-old women, just letting it all show. Letting it all hang out. 
Sadly, this is probably the path I'm on to. Let's be honest. I'll be the same way when I'm 80. But that's gym life. You shower there. You bring a change of clothes. You got to bring your sandals for that shower or else you'll have a panic attack. If you're a germaphobe, there's no grosser experience than forgetting your shower sandals. Oh, my God. The stream of dirty stranger water just going over your toes. Yep, that happens. You forget your sandals. You're like, I still need a shower. Do I go tippy toes? Oh, boy. Do I just risk all the many diseases that I could picture? But wear your shower sandals. Then you bring a change of clothes. And then when you leave, that is nirvana. That's euphoria. That feeling of leaving the gym after a good workout where you actually push yourself and then you sauna with the old guys, you hot tub with the old ladies, you shower, you change. And the immediate feeling of going outside, you hear the angels sing. You could hear the birds. Just life is beautiful. So there you go. This is one big ad for get a gym membership. I did hear a comedian, Eric Griffin, say it should be free in America, just like we provide a lot of things. You know, socialist customs, we provide things. We provide parks. We provide the security of police. We provide public schools. We provide purified water and fountains. We should provide gyms. And I agree with that. I think it's something people need, not people should do. But I think like a library, people should just have the ability to go to a gym. The idea of thinking, oh, I don't have enough money for a gym membership. That's sad because it's the number one thing, in my opinion. Number one thing that's going to help my mental health from here until the day I die. That's why in a weird way, I love seeing, you know, here I am sounding all negative about the old folks in the gym, but I love seeing that they should be in the gym. That's where they should be. I bet the endorphins are released. They're going on the treadmill at 0.0008 miles per hour for about three hours, looking for small talk, saying hello, staring at the asses. Come on, old fellas, you deserve this. Are you still thinking about the pilots as an AI? You know I'm right. Was I 94% kidding? Nope. Guess what? 76. I'm only 76% kidding now. 24% serious. Okay. See how that fluctuated over the span of this podcast? Now I'm really believing my own bullshit. Isn't that a scary disorder when people start believing their own bullshit? I wonder if people do. On social media, start posting all the pictures with the right angle and the right lighting and the right filter and something that didn't really happen, but they made it look like it happened. And then they start believing that that's how they live because I have people like this in my life or I see people like this on Instagram. And that is why I'm happy to announce my New Year's resolution. (gasps) Get off Instagram. Done. Goodbye. It's gross. That's the worst of them all. I like Twitter. I'll be on Facebook forever, I guess, even though I only check it about once every 41 hours. I can't see myself discontinuing my account, but... I no longer enjoy it, no longer feel connected to anybody through Facebook. But then there's Instagram. And I got on Instagram because I thought, first, I want to be a dog photographer, which I'm not. And then second, I thought, all right, this will be a decent way to promote the podcast. Here we go. Episode 77. So I put up a little, you know, video, not a video, but just like a photo story every time I put out a podcast. And that was me justifying having an Instagram account. And then, of course, people find you and then you see people's lives and you start to click like or little comments here and little comments there and then the dark underbelly pops up and you see how people are using instagram the true addiction and the facade that's being created i'm like this is not making me happy every time i tap this icon on my phone i don't ever feel happy i don't ever feel oh this is great so i gotta get off there it is my new year's resolution i was telling my buddy jason this and he said it won't be hard it's true there are some things that won't be hard Those are the good resolutions. 
About 10 years ago, one of my resolutions was no more fast food for a year. Subway, yes. Okay, I still considered Subway okay. And Rubio's. Rubio's was okay. But I meant like no Burger King, no Taco Bell, no McDonald's. I did it with ease. I felt like I was going to Jack in the Box too often for that dollar menu. Oh my God, those tacos with the American cheese. I haven't had those in so long. But if you brought me two right now, I wonder if I would like them or if they would be gross. I wonder. I don't know. Went through the Taco Bell drive-thru two days ago. I got three soft taco Supremes. They weren't that good. I remember them being like the most amazing, amazing tastes. But you're able to change. <laughs> Try to make it so deep. We can change if we stop enjoying our soft taco Supreme experience. But I'm saying healthy habits can be created. What do they say? It takes three months to really create a new habit. So if you're somebody who says, you know what? I don't like meditating or I don't like going to the gym. And if you truly commit to something for three months, there's something about a habit, a good habit. We should all have some good habits that can form. And that's a short amount of time to commit to and to leave a habit behind. So if there's something about you that you dislike, you're saying, I'm a nail biter or I'm on Instagram too much. Three months, you try to get rid of that habit. Boom. It starts to feel normal. It's probably the first phase that you have to get through. Now, New Year's resolutions, usually I like this time of year, but I was so sick. I was just in a fog. And when you're sick, when you're really sick, you got that head cold, you're detached from the world around you. It's the opposite of how you want to live. You want to engage with the world around you. When I'm sick, I'm just witnessing everything happen around me. So that describes my entire holiday season. I went to dinner at friends' houses. You know, I try extra hard to seem like I have energy and focus. And get involved in conversations. And then by the time I'm going home, I'm going, I don't really remember much. I just go on autopilot. It's a good skill to develop. Autopilot for so many settings, so many social settings. If you could go on autopilot, it's wonderful. You try to avoid people going, are you okay? Isn't that the worst when you're not and someone identifies it? <gasps> oh boy, are you okay? Because you just look like shit. I think I have the ability to conceal it. Even though the people closest to me, they know when I'm feeling like shit or when I'm stressed, emotional, sad or whatever. But there's only a select few that know. For the most part, I am able to conceal it. And then with the people I really like, then I just wear it on my sleeve. What the hell does that mean, by the way? That expression, wear it on your sleeve. Isn't that an expression? Yeah, you really wear it on your sleeve. Wear what? Oh yeah, my point is though, none of this felt festive. Christmas caroling, we, we went to menorah lightings, Hanukkah lightings. It was all very fun. I was able to do it all. I think I did more this year actually that looked festive, but on the inside, I was just coughing, lozenges, so much DayQuil. I went through three different packs of DayQuil and finally kicked it a couple days ago, but it was brutal. And then New Year's pops up and I realized, huh, this is my favorite holiday. And I didn't really do any of that mental prep of what's the future year going to look like for you and reflecting on the year behind. I just didn't. It was like as nondescript as the decade initially, right? Initially, I say 2010 through 2020, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? And the answer is, I don't know. But then you really think about it. You think about it and a lot comes to mind. Well, that was me on the resolution phase. Now, what's the resolution? I don't know. Get off Instagram. Sounded easy. But then I realized it doesn't just have to be something that I come up with. Why not listen to the great thinkers? You know, find a philosopher or a guru that you like and then go Google some of their quotes, whether it's Einstein or Gandhi, whoever it is, just someone respectable, MLK. Just think of someone respectable and then go Google their quotes, Google their life. You might learn something. And this way of thinking just coincided with the passing of Ramdas, Richard Alpert. Dr. Richard Alpert. This was the guy who with Timothy Leary did the LSD experiments. 
This is the true guru who went from that professor of psychology at Harvard to pretty much a Buddhist monk who taught meditation, became Ram Das. And I would know nothing of this guy if it weren't for Pete Holmes' podcast. Pete Holmes, the comedian who had the HBO show Crashing, who wrote a really good book you should read this year called Comedy Sex God. And he talks about Ram Dass in such high esteem that I learned about him through Pete and figured, all right, yeah, I could get behind some of this guy's views. And then he dies two weeks ago. And one of his views is about death, that we view it the wrong way. We've created this view of death that's just all fear, all anxiety. Like, that's the worst. Whereas he said, we should reshape our vision of what death is. Like, it's a gift. We all get to go home. We all get to walk each other home, he says. So he put together a bunch of these life lessons. And I started reading a few of them, and I realized, all right, I'm going to try to adopt some of these. So these aren't my New Year's resolutions. This is me stealing from Ram Dass, but I'm going to read some of them now. And you think on your own. As I say some of these, think, are you able to do this or not? And if you are able to do some of these, uh, maybe it'll help your life. All right, one of them. He says, love is not found in another person. It's found within you. It's a state of being. Think about that. Even if you're happily married or if you're single, boyfriend, girlfriend, doesn't matter. But the idea of relying on another person, on love, is something that might hurt you, Ram Dass says. Love is found within you. Unconditional love for yourself. He said it needs to rest in each of us, just for who you are. Doesn't matter about your shortcomings, your self-esteem issues, your focus on physical imperfections, professional success. He says none of that matters. The day you actually start to love yourself will be the most successful space you could live in. That's interesting because I'm married. I wonder, do I rely on my wife to be my source of joy? And the answer is yes, but only one of them, not my entire source of joy. And that's why he says maintain individuality. That's Ram Dass's advice. You know, if you ever see a couple grow together, like they both have their different interests when they meet each other and then they start to grow together and start to do everything together. That's not healthy. You got to maintain your sense of individual identities because that's what you were originally enamored with with the other person. If you guys just start to talk alike and think alike and live alike and be alike and go to the same classes and always do the same shit, that's not good for a relationship. And that's one of his life lessons. He says, cherish relationships, but don't allow them to define you. I kind of like that. He says, death is not the end. He goes in to say it's perfectly safe. We all fear it. And I get that because there's things about life that we'll all miss. But I think the mystery that lies ahead He's trying to say, that's exciting. Try to rewire your vision of what death is. This is just a blip of our energy, this homo sapien form on this planet. Uh, Ram Dass also says, don't take yourself for granted. That could be a New Year's resolution. He says, don't take moments for granted. Like even when you're sick or even when you're pissed, can you ever just look in the mirror and go, but this is good. This is good that I'm dealing with this. That's one of the hardest ones, huh? Not to take a moment, a shitty moment for granted. Ram Dass says, this is the Hindu perspective. You're born as what you need to deal with. And if you just try to push it away, whatever it is, it's got you. As he says, be content even in your discontent. I'm so bad at that. Because when you're in a shitty mood, you can't wait to be in a good mood again. But the only way you could classify it as a good mood is by knowing you didn't used to be in that mood. So being an idealist will kill you if you idealize happiness and go, I always want to be happy in 2020. 2020, that'll fuck you up. What else does he say? I, I wrote a few, to, a few of these down. Allow silence into your life. The quieter you become, the more you can hear. 
So true. That's why overly chatty people, shut up. Shut up. Uh, If you listen to your own inner voice, it will tell you where you are now and be here now. We're fascinated by the words, but where we meet is in the silence behind them. Ooh, Ramdas. And then finally, he says, don't try too hard. His famous quote, as long as you want power, you can't have it. The minute you don't want power anymore, you'll have more than you ever dreamed possible. Let that resonate for a moment. And then classic stuff like life's a journey and there's no destination. You're just on this path where you never go, okay, I win life. I conquered life. I've reached a state of being my best. No, 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 no. Find content in your flaws. Smile at your mistakes. All this shit I'd love to become so, so good at and improve with it. So I'll try. That's all I could say. I guess that's all you could say in early January. I'll try. If you're cynical and go, I have no chance. I can't do this. I can't do that. Then you're screwed, I guess. All right. There's your Ram Dass lesson. Two other quick ones for you. Number one, if you have HBO, watch the Mel Brooks documentary. You can watch it in three different sittings. But oh my God, who's funnier than Mel Brooks? Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs. But he's not the star of these movies. You know, director, writer, even composer, very musical guy, the producers. But Mel himself, getting to know Mel himself, he's just a guy you want to know, you want to hug, you want to have lunch with. So gregarious, so smart, and still alive. He's like 93, 94 years old, still alive, Mel Brooks. And they have all these snippets of interviews he's done in the past. He's so weird, too. He is a fearless comic. He's attacked so many topics that people have probably said, eh, Society's not ready to discuss that. He goes, who cares? Here's the middle finger to that. Comedy is intended to push the envelope. And if I can make you laugh while making you think, then boom, I win. He was convinced that his career was going to end so many different times. But people like when comedy, people love when comedy goes a little too far. Not too, too far, but just a little too far. That's how it advances. That's why comedy looks so tame. If you ever watch some comics from the 60s, 70s, even 80s, it looks tame. To nowadays, it seems scathing. It seems dirtier than ever, the world of stand-up. But it won't. In 20, 30 years, we'll look back on this last decade of comedy and go, yeah, it was pretty tame. But the Mel Brooks documentary, oh my God. There will be tears. There will be laughs. And then finally, speaking of comedy, uh, read two. I have an addiction to memoirs or just books, bios of comedians, and I'd say 40% of them are good. 40%, 60% are so bad, but I still read them. Here's the example. I just read Ellie Kemper's book. I don't know why. Ellie Kemper plays Aaron, the receptionist on The Office. She was in Bridesmaids, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She's okay, right? She's pretty funny. She wrote a book and it was so bad. She was trying so hard. Oh boy. She was in a character the whole time. You learn nothing about her because you're like, are you joking? Are you being sarcastic? Are you trying to be cute? It was just fake. It was terrible. It was an Amazon one star. I hate saying that, but it just did not need to be written. And then I just started Ali Wong's book. Who's Ali Wong? Ali Wong is probably one of the top 10 greatest comics going right now. You might only know her from her pregnant specials on Netflix. She did two where she's just totally pregnant, ready to pop right there on stage. And they were good specials, kind of turned her into a mainstream success. Also had a Netflix movie called Always Be My Maybe, which she wrote, which was good. It was actually good because Netflix turns out so many shitty movies All their original programming that they just throw into your face daily. Here's a new series. Here's a new documentary. Here's a new movie. How many documentaries can you do, by the way? The formula is so easy. 
Just find some footage, find a few interviews, put some nice music, get a good narrator's voice, a good voiceover, and then capture anything in time. I feel like you could make a new documentary about any topic compelling with this formula that all these networks have. It's almost like cheating. It's compelling, but afterwards you're like, all right, now there's 7,000 more to watch that all have the same exact formula of storytelling. I feel like 20 years ago, there were, what, 50 documentaries? Now there's 50,000. I could be wrong with those numbers. I could be wrong. But back to Allie. So her career completely ascended with the Netflix specials. Good for her. But we're the exact same age. She's from San Francisco. She came up through the punchline, moved to New York City, and her book is phenomenal. If you're a comedy nerd like me, or you just like reading about a good story, her life as a mother, she talks all about her pregnancies, of course. She talks about her husband. She talks about love. She talks about bodily function. She talks about comedy as a career for women. And I remember seeing her at the La Jolla Comedy Store, which is probably my favorite comedy club ever. And I remember seeing her name on the marquee and saying, who is Ali Wong? And she was there from Thursday to Sunday, headlining Thursday two shows, Friday two shows, Saturday two shows, Sunday one show. And I saw the Sunday one show. Meaning I always knew, I think I lived in San Diego 12, 13 years, maybe 14 years. I always knew every weekend, this is probably some OCD, who was headlining at the comedy store. I just thought it was fine to know. Like checking the weather, I would always just check, hey, who's headlining the comedy store in La Jolla? And when I saw her name, I said, no thanks, no thanks. And then I forget why I was in La Jolla. For some reason, just walking by, and I was like, all right, let me check this out. I was with a couple of friends. And I knew the manager back then. Actually, I used to get into some shows for free. How cool am I? But by the time she got on stage, she was about four minutes into her set. And I just said, I love her. Like, I'm in love. Her style is great. Her material is so polished. She was connecting with the crowd. She just seemed real. And to see her have this kind of success is no surprise. I'm not doing the old, oh, yeah, I saw it coming bullshit. And I'm not doing, oh, I knew her before she was a star. Because if you're headlining, you're pretty much a pro and a well-received, well-known, well-recognized comic, if you're headlining the comedy store. But she killed for a full hour. And now I read the book, and she talks about, you know, the path it took to tell her parents. You know, she's like, you never really want to tell your Asian parents, I am going to be a stand-up comedian, because they view that as, yeah, good luck. That's for white men. What are the odds? And she even says, I don't recommend being a stand-up comedian. If you're a woman, there's a lot of risks. People will judge you. People will overlook your name on a marquee and go, eh, probably takes a little more to prove yourself in that world if you're a woman. But what she has done in this book is proven that she can write as well. So that's my recommendation. It's called Dear Girls by Ali Wong. Is there anybody listening right now that will actually read that? I highly doubt it, but at least you heard my review of it. All right, I wrote down a few other bullet points, but it is time to go take a nap. This old man has got to get his ass in a sauna. All right, it's episode 77. Leave a rating or a review on iTunes if you like. Check out that book, Suddenly Facing Reality. It's on Amazon. Uh, try to dedicate yourself to a few of your resolutions just through January. We should say month resolutions. Now, what's your new year resolution? What's your first month out of the gates resolution? And you can do it. Why am I trying to make this a motivational ending? Who knows? Maybe you can't. Either way, I love you. Thanks for listening. That's episode 77. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon.